Bible with you, I hope you do, then please find your way to Luke chapter 15, and we're perfectly fine here. If that means you've got a device you want to tap along on, or swipe, or uh, even if you've got one of those good Bibles that you can take notes in, uh, we'd love for you just to follow along in God's Word and to receive the richness therein. But today I want to share with you a message that I've titled, The Worth of Just One. The worth of just one. And we're going to be looking in particular at a parable that's known as the parable of the lost coin. But just to kind of collect our thoughts around this topic, I want to share with you a story that I heard about a teenage guy who was playing basketball with his brother out in the driveway when all of a sudden, I guess he got fouled a little bit hard, but he lost his contact lens. And so, you know, he and his brother, they scoured around. They tried to find the contact lens, but eventually, you know, they did what teenagers do. They, they got hungry. And so they decided they were just going to go on in. As they went in, they told their mother, oh, you know, he lost his contact lens, but we, we did all that we could to try and find it. So, you know, they sat down for their snack while mom proceeded to go outside. And she came back about two or three minutes later with that contact in hand. And they said, how on earth did you find that contact lens that we looked so hard for? She said, well, here's the difference between you and me. You were looking for a contact lens. I was looking for $150. (laughs) All of us can empathize with that story. When we bear the cost of an item that has been lost and that item is of great value to us, then we will be more diligent in our search to find that one item which has been lost. We will be burdened to a greater degree if we bear the cost of that item which is lost. And we will be highly invested until that item which is lost has been found. Last week, we began this mini-series of messages within our larger series through the book of Luke. And this short series of messages are all based on the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. It's a series that I've titled, God's Lost and Found, because that's the theme that we see so richly portrayed here in Luke chapter 15. Here in Luke 15, Jesus teaches us through a series of three Parables, And we talked last week about how a parable is just this kind of metaphorical technique of a speaker or of a writer to, to kind of throw up a particular story that would just be common to everyday life. The kind of story that you and I might expect to encounter in our daily lives. But in conveying that sort of story, an individual would be conveying a deeper truth. And for Jesus, that's always going to be a deeper spiritual truth. And, and time and time again, we've seen Jesus using this technique of speaking in just kind of everyday stories of the things that we might find in life. But in that, he's conveying to us the truths of God's kingdom. He's conveying to us deeper truths that we need to know about God and how he functions in relationship to the world that we live in. We learn God's heart, God's passions when we find ourselves empathizing with these stories of Jesus. And the parables of Luke chapter 15 offer us some rich lessons about God's heart for those who are far from him, lost in their trespasses and sins. In fact, the reason that Jesus launches into these parables, these three sequential parables, is because he hears the grumbling of the groups of religious elites who are gathered around him. And we identified those groups last week. There are the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm not going to go into the same level of detail about them other than to say they were the religious elites of their day. They were the ones that everyone thought had it all together They could give you the right interpretations. They were living the life that needed to be lived. And these individuals, the religious elites, the one who seemed to had it all together when it came to their relationship to the Almighty, these individuals were disturbed by the fact that Jesus, who is honored by the multitudes as a Jewish rabbi when we come to Luke Luke chapter 15, and he's honored as a prophet of God, Jesus, this highly esteemed teacher and prophet, is receiving sinners 
and eating with them. And the religious elite simply cannot fathom the idea that a representative of God Almighty could allow himself to get so close to those who were chiefly known for the fact that they were separated by God because of their lifestyles of sin. And so when Jesus teaches us these parables here in Luke chapter 15, he is speaking to the Pharisees Rich truths that you and I can also glean about the heart of God for sinners. The heart of God for searching for those who are lost. In this first parable that we looked at last week, we we looked at the lost sheep. and, And we talked last week about how that lost sheep been wandering away, causing so much of the shepherd to leave his rest of his flock, the 99 behind, so that he would go and search after that one. The fact that the shepherd was willing to search, we talked about last week, was the hope of the 99. Because the truth is that we all wander astray. We all wander away from God. And the only hope that any of us would have would be that when we wander away, the one who loves us comes searching for us. Well, this week we're going to look at the parable of the lost coin. Next week we'll look at the parable of the lost son. But in all of these instances, Jesus is teaching the scribes and he's teaching the Pharisees and he's teaching the people gathered here at New Vision today something about why he as God in the flesh, is willing to receive sinners and eat with them. And it's because these sinners are lost and God is going after them. God is searching for them. And he searches in a way that shows us just how valuable even one lost sinner is to the heart of God. In all of these parables, God's heart for even one is on display. From the lost sheep to the lost coin to the lost son, in each instance, the search continues until the one is found. And then we find that each time the one which was lost is found, there is a great celebration. There is great joy. And God is showing the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's showing us That he sees great worth in just one sinner who is lost. And our Lord's love for the one who is lost is vividly on display in this parable of the lost coin that we're going to look at here today. That's why I've titled today's message, The Worth of Just One. And let me just say, maybe you're here today and you're feeling worthless Maybe you've made some big mistakes or or you've been used up and you've been cast aside or you're just generally questioning whether or not anyone truly loves you, whether or not anyone truly cares about you. Well, I can tell you today that on the authority of God's word that no matter how worthless you may think you are, no matter how worthless some other person might consider you to be, You are a prized pursuit of the God who made you. So look with me now at Luke chapter 15. We'll start in verse 8 and go through verse 10. And we will see God's heart for every human on display in this short parable. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand and we might honor the reading of God's word together. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 8. This is still Jesus teaching in parables where he says, Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, this parable that we've just read is rather simple. It's a fairly small chunk of text for what we would normally cover on a Sunday morning. 
But Jesus calls for us in this very short parable to consider a woman who has 10 silver coins and then loses just one of those coins. Now this woman, upon realizing that she's lost something that is obviously of great worth to her, she launches into this search for what is lost. And she continues in that search until she finds that coin which she is searching for. And in that, we learn that this coin which was lost is very valuable to this woman. Otherwise, why would she invest so much in her pursuit of finding this one coin which was lost? And then Jesus kind of ties this parable to some spiritual realities in verse 10, saying, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner. That number that we talked about being so important last week, one. We tend to look at numbers in a a thousand other sort of perspectives. We're looking for the big numbers, but God is showing us his heart for just one. And he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus isn't ultimately teaching us the value of a lost coin to a woman. He's ultimately teaching us about the value of one lost sinner to our God. And how do we know the worth of just one who is lost? Well, I want to share with you from this passage four observations about how we know the worth of just one who is lost. Here's the first of those observations. The worth of just one who is lost is not based on calculations. It's not based on calculations. The item that's lost in this parable seems pretty insignificant to all of us. Does it not? I mean, this woman lost one coin. No big deal, we might say. And, and her neighbors might have even said the same sort of thing. They're like, well, why are you making such a big deal over this one lost coin? And, and if I'm sitting on my couch at home and a coin slips out of my pocket into the cushions below, I may not even notice that it's missing, ever. And if I do, I'm probably not likely to go get the flashlight or to turn the couch over just to find it. It's just one coin is the way my mind tends to go. I've got lots of other coins in the bank. Likewise, others who knew of this woman's loss might have said, you know, that's no big deal. It's just a single coin. Just let it go. You've still got nine others. But we must understand that the worth of this coin, which was lost was not based on the calculations of this woman. In in fact, some Bible scholars I have read describe how in Bible times, women would often receive 10 silver coins as a wedding gift from their families. Each coin would be worth about a day's worth of wages, and the woman would then wear those coins on her headdress right across the front of her forehead. And and these coins were something kind of like the wedding rings that we wear in this day and age, in that a woman who wore those coins in her headband was indicating to others that she was married. And those coins meant something to her beyond just their market value. In fact, some scholars would even say that a woman who was caught being unfaithful to her husband would have one of her coins removed. So the loss of that coin would then mean that she would be subject to public speculation and to public shame. And you might say, well, well, why not just replace that coin with another coin if that's the main thing we're trying to guard against? Well, here's where we see again that the value of the coin wasn't just based on calculations. It had a sentimental value to the woman. This was something she had received from her wedding. Now, a few years ago, my wife Amy needed to use her hands for something she was making in the kitchen. So she momentarily removed her wedding and her engagement rings, which had been welded together to make one ring. And the problem that she found was that once she was done working in the kitchen, she couldn't find those rings. For a few days, she tore apart our house looking for those rings. Every room, every cushion, every piece of the house was turned over as she passionately sought that ring which was missing. 
Now, when I gave her that ring 15 years or so ago, we talked to our insurance agency. And we set up a policy to have that ring insured against loss or theft. So in my mind, right, the economical, calculating sort of guy that I am, I was thinking, well, at least I'm going to get my money's worth out of that policy I've been paying into for all these years, right? But that would not suffice for my wife. She wasn't happy to just go and get a new ring because the value of that ring was more than just a calculation for her. That value of that ring was based in the fact that her husband had given her that ring in love. That was the ring that had been presented to her as she agreed to marry me and as she agreed to the vows that we made before the Lord. And so she would not stop searching for that ring until one day with her mother having this kind of bizarre dream that this ring was in the couch, my wife and I turned that couch over and she noticed a little lump near the bottom backside of the upholstery and we quickly cut into that thing and out came my wife's wedding and engagement rings. It was lost no more. Do you know how she responded in that moment? With joy, with exuberance, with celebration. She called her mother. She called others who had been helping us to look for that thing, and they were all ecstatic. This ring wasn't just a calculation for my wife. It had a sentimental value to her. Beyond the diamonds and the metal, there was a love that in her mind was wrapped up in that ring. You know, when God goes after lost sinners, his pursuit is not based on calculations. He doesn't just say, well, there's one, only one-tenth or one-hundredth of those that I've created who are lost. He doesn't say, well, well, what's the difference if just one sinner remains on the outside? No, God sees value in the one. And the worth of just one who is lost is not based on the calculations. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet given your life to Christ. Hear me on this, my friend. You're not just a number with the Lord. He doesn't just say, well, millions of others have come to me. What's the difference if that one does not come? No, as Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God cares for every lost sinner and if you were the only lost person on earth his heart would still be burdened for you because that's the number that matters to God just one matters to him and you're not just a number among the crowd to him as Jesus has proven over and over again in his earthly ministry which we've seen play out in Luke's gospel he was never too big he was never too busy to deal with just one person who had a need. And here he was in the midst of the tax collectors and sinners whom he welcomed to be near him. While the uber-religious Pharisees and scribes remained aloof on the outside, if Jesus was only worried about calculations, if Jesus was only worried about statistics, he might have said, I'm not going to let sinners come near me because they might drive away the religious folks. But Jesus didn't come to keep religious folks happy. He came to save sinners. And you know, I feel like a lot of churches in our day and age make their decisions based on what's going to keep the religious folks happy. They kick and they bite against any change because they don't want to upset the 90%. And so they lose the hope of reaching the, the others who are not within their ranks. But this is obviously not the heart of our God. And neither should it be the heart of his church. Let me say this more bluntly. If adapting what we do as a church in order to go after lost sinners who are valued by God causes us to lose some folks that we have now, then those folks probably shouldn't have been here in the first place. 
Because God has a relentless heart for those who are lost in sin. And we must be a church that exhibits that heart as his bride going after those who are lost in sin. God pursues them with a passionate love that shows us that the worth of just one who is lost is not based on calculations. That's the first observation about how we know the value of one who is lost. Here's the second one. The worth of just one who is lost is not based on contributions. A coin that is lost has no practical value to the person who possesses that coin. If the landlord were to come by, for example, and speak to this woman who is searching for her lost coin to collect the rent for the month, it's not going to make any difference to that landlord that the woman says she has a coin that she can't find. That has no value and practical benefit to her. No lost coin buried in the dirt can't contribute anything to its owner. Coins have no power to change their lost state. They don't have a will to kind of find their way out of the dirt of the floor. They don't have a a way to make their way back. When coins are lost, they're helpless unless someone comes searching for them. And so as long as this coin remained lost, it was useless to the woman. It had no practical value. It could not adorn her head. It could not be used to meet her needs. It was useless as long as it was lost. You know, likewise, the life of an individual who is lost is of no practical value to God. There is nothing that a lost individual can contribute to God. Just as a coin that's stamped with the image of of a ruler a life is stamped with the image of its creator every human life is stamped with the image of our creator which has great potential for value but as long as that life is not placed within the master's hands it contributes nothing to him But when that life is found, when that life is restored, when that life finds its proper place by the power of God, that life can be all God had designed it to be in the first place. Now, the practical reality here is this. None of us has anything at all to contribute while we are apart from God. In fact, the Bible describes a lost person That is a person who has sinned and fallen short of God's glory and has not been restored to him by his redeeming work. God describes a person like that as dead. Paul wrote these words to to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is, those who are apart from God had nothing to contribute. They were dead. But listen to what God does with dead things when they're contributing nothing to him. Because Paul goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is, God gives dead things what they do not deserve. God pursues the dead things to give them hope and life. And friends, hear the good news of the gospel. Our great God gives life to dead things that contribute nothing to him. Though we may be as worthless as a coin that's stuck in the dirt, he takes the initiative and offers us life. When we were dead, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to to contribute, he faced the cross and the shame and the torture and the blame. And every soul of man has value, not because of what it can contribute, but because of who it belongs to. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll get myself cleaned up and then I'll come to God. I'll start doing things for him and and then he'll accept me because of what I'm contributing. Friend, if you haven't been saved, then you've got nothing to contribute. But that's not the basis for the worth that he sees in you. 
Take courage because the worth of just one who is lost is not based on contributions. That's the second observation about how we know the value of one who is lost. Here's the third. The worth of one who is lost is not based on complications. Look, if we're honest, we know the dangers of inviting tax collectors and sinners into the fold of God. We know what the Pharisees and the scribes were upset about. Things can get messy. If we're honest, there's a little bit of a Pharisee in each one of us. Reaching out to the one who is lost means that even in the best case scenario, we welcome a sinner turned into a saint who has just begun this process of sanctification into the body of Christ. That means sinful habits, which are hard to break, may follow those lost souls that have been found into the flock of God. And before we get too down on the Pharisees and scribes, maybe we should acknowledge that there are complications associated with reaching out to the one who is lost. For the woman in the parable, she paid greatly in her search for this coin. She had to take great pains in order to find it. She had to light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully. Now, typically houses in Palestine during this day were very dark. As a matter of fact, they were typically made of solid walls all the way around with the exception of the door, which would have typically been closed, and then a window, which was about an 18-inch circle. All right, so you can imagine there's not a lot of light coming into this house. Furthermore, the floor was nothing more than beaten earth, which had been covered up with some straw. So looking for a coin on a floor like that, in a dark place like that, was pretty similar to the phrase that we often use when something's hard to find. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. If this coin was going to be found, if it was going to be located, then this was going to be a pretty complicated endeavor. This woman had to light a lamp. She had to sweep the floor. She had to search and hope that she might see some sort of reflection through the light or hear some tinkle as she disturbed that coin from its place with the broom. And yet she keeps searching. As a matter of fact, the original Greek language here that describes how she searched carefully has this idea of a continual action. She kept searching for this coin it was a complicated search through the dirt in hopes of finding that which was lost and that coin would need to be cleaned up before it was just thrown into her headband but all of those complications did not negate the worth of the one as this lady searched for her lost coin likewise i don't care how dirty your life has gotten I don't care how deep in the filthiness of your trespasses and sins you've become lodged. The one who searches for lost souls still searches for you. Your value is not based on the complications of your past. You may say, I'm filthy with sin. Well, Jesus shows us that he's still searching for you. And he essentially says, when I find you, I will wash you, and I will cleanse you, and I will make you new. And the hope of the church is not that clean people will be added to our numbers so that we grow into this reputable, clean, safe place. The hope of the church is that Jesus can make the vilest sinner clean. And so, we don't piece together our plans asking, what's going to make our church less susceptible to negative feedback or what's going to keep us from getting too invested and expending too much of our time because when we were dead when we were dirty when we were stuck in sin jesus kept searching for us that's the truth of any of us who's truly been saved so if his heart is going to be our heart then we must go after the one who is lost Because that's the worth of one who is lost to our Savior. A worth that causes him to relentlessly 
pursue. A worth that is not based on the complications. That's the third observation about how we know the value of one who's lost. Here's the fourth. The worth of one, just one who is lost, is based on the cares of the one who searches. Friends, that's what it all boils down to. The value of just one is based on the cares of the one who searches for that one. What made this coin so valuable in this moment? What was it that was, that was so compelling? It wasn't the calculations or the contributions or the complications. It was the fact that someone cared enough about that coin to search for it in a way that was relentless, searching for it until it was found. That's the way this woman searched for the coin. And that's what Jesus is teaching us about the tax collectors and the sinners and the riffraff among all of humanity. This man receives sinners and eats with them is the accusation. And he gladly owns that accusation because Jesus is going after the lost. Just as the woman searches until she finds the coin, Jesus has a relentless pursuit of those who are lost. If you are still alive and breathing, then know that Jesus is still pursuing you if you are not yet in his fold. And if and when he finds you, if and when you repent, there will be rejoicing in heaven over you, my friend. Just as the woman who found her lost coin said, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Jesus says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's in the presence of the angels of God, we might ask? Well, God's in the presence of his angels. This is showing us the the passion, the pursuit of heaven, the passion, the pursuit of the one who rules over heaven. This is the passionate pursuit of God Almighty. For those who are in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is also the celebration of those who've gone on before us in Christ. In the presence of the angels, there they gather, and there there's a great celebration as one sinner repents. This glorious heavenly celebration. That's what happens each time just one who is lost is found. And how does the finding happen? It happens through repentance. That's what Jesus says when one sinner repents. What does it mean to repent? Well, here it is. An individual who repents turns to God from his or her sins. So they were walking in a former direction. They were pursuing former passions. They were living a life that had former objectives. And they turn to God to say, look, God, I know the way that I was going was not the right way. I know that was a self-serving way. I'm going to live for your will and for your plans. Does that mean that person is going to walk a perfect walk from that point on? No. But when we truly repent, when we truly exercise faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and becomes within us a guiding agent of God to compel us in a direction that grows us in what we call sanctification, grows us in holiness, grows us in the likeness of Christ. And so true repentance says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the things that I was once a part of, and I'm now pursuing God. Will there be times when the old flesh draws us back? Will there be times when the old flesh draws us astray? Yes. But God's Spirit will continue to compel the lost sinner in this act of repentance to where you will not be content to continue down a road that pursues something other than the one who has saved you. But repentance must be combined with faith. They're two sides of the same coin in reality. Repentance can't settle the debt of our sin. The blood that Christ has shed, His blood alone satisfies God's wrath against our sin. You know, we can weep over our sin for days, but our tears will not get us into heaven. Our sorrow for our sins does not somehow cancel the debt that we owe. Only Jesus Christ and his shed blood can atone for our sins. And so our trust must be in him alone. Our trust is not in our faith. Our trust is not in our repentance. Our trust is in our Lord. 
But when we come to trust in who he truly is as the Savior and the Lord, we gladly yield to him our former pursuits and our former passions. We yield those to his control as we receive him as the Lord of our lives. And repentance is just that word which refers to turning to God away from our sins. Repentance always accompanies saving faith. Jesus is searching for the lost. Do you want to know the value of just one who is lost? Look at the efforts that the Lord has undertaken so that he might reach just the one. He came all the way from heaven to earth to search for his lost ones. He pursued sinners into every dark corner, and he now shines the light of the glorious gospel on them all. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the lost sinner is worth Christ's coming. He or she is worth Christ's dying. And what was necessary to recover the lost has required a costly grace. The sinless Son of God became a man and he lived among sinners. He bore God's wrath for sin on the cross and he rose triumphant over the grave. But this was his joy. In fact, that's heaven's joy. There's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Listen, God isn't waiting for the quarterly report to come up to determine how many lost sinners have given their lives to to Christ over the last quarter before he celebrates. When only one comes, you can be sure that he is rejoicing. And the salvation of just one sinner makes the headlines of heaven. And look, our society may seek to downplay anything positive that happens in the life of the church. Our headlines are focused on the wildfires or on the stock market or on the impeachment proceedings. But heaven's headlines rejoice to welcome one lost sinner who comes home. And so, my friends, let us never underestimate the value of just one lost soul. Here's what it boils down to. If God values the one, then we must value the one. If God is so zealous over one who is lost, how much more zealous should we, as those who've been redeemed by him, who committed our lives to him, how much more zealous should we be over the many who are lost around us? And this has a few implications for the business that we should be about as his church. Here's some implications of that. If God values the one, then first let's light the lamp. That's what the woman did first in her dark home as she sought after the coin. And already a couple of times in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus talking about a light being lit as a sign of the gospel going out. In Luke chapter 8, verse 16, for example, Jesus said, Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it on a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in might see the light. Jesus uses this analogy of hiding a lamp to illustrate hiding the word of God. The light of God is his word, both the written word, which we have in our Bibles, but also the living word, who is Christ. We have been given this light to light our way. And the word illumines our hearts to understanding God's plans for us. If one who is lost is going to be found, then he must find the light which guides him out of the darkness that he's stuck in. And hiding the word of God means not sharing his word with others. Jesus is saying that we should not hide away the gospel truth. Friends, we've got good news to share. God has little lamp for us. Christ has come to be the light That is the life of men. And he does not desire to hide his light away from anyone. So let's light the lamp as we value just one. The way that God values the one. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And God has lifted his light up on a lampstand. Because Jesus was lifted up on a cross. He was lifted up out of the grave. And he's been lifted up into heaven. Are we bringing this light to bear upon the darkness? That surrounds us. And friends, let's light the lamp. Let others hear the good news from our lips about what Jesus has done. 
Let's share what he has done for all of mankind. Let's also share what he has done for each and every one of us who've been saved because each one of us has a testimony, a story of what God has done and God deserves the glory. Every lost sinner is an opportunity to bring glory to his name. Every lost sinner is a coin which ought to be in his headdress bringing glory to him. And if our mission is to multiply God's glory on the earth, and it is, then we must be looking to shine the light of Christ upon those who are lost. So let's value the one by lighting the lamp and sharing the gospel, but also let's sweep the house. That's the second action this woman took as she sought her lost coin. She swept the house. She was removing the dirt. And if the truth be told, there are a lot of Christians who are still playing in the dirt. But ultimately, Jesus came to cleanse. Jesus came to remove the dirt. But when we wallow in what we once were, we place our personal priorities above Christ's kingdom. When we allow unrepentant sin to remain in our lives, we hide the gospel behind our own filth. So let's sweep the house. Let's resolve to know Christ in the power of His transforming Spirit within us. Let's be sanctified, ready to be used as instruments who convey His truth in a way does not cloud the message that we portray. Yes, let's value the one by sweeping the house. Also, let's search with care so that the lost can be found. That's the third action the woman takes. She searches with a relentless search, just as Christ comes after us with a relentless love until He finds that which was lost. So let's examine our hearts Let's examine our prejudices against those who are lost. Let's get to know our neighbors. Let's pursue those who need Christ. And finally, let's recalibrate our source of joy. You know, Christ has revealed that the salvation of just one lost soul causes the God who saved us to rejoice. If God so celebrates when just one lost sinner repents, should we not as well? But what brings us joy? I mean, what are the things that we're really celebrating in our lives? What, what, what is our passionate pursuit of joy? Do we rejoice when our stocks go up and we make a huge profit? Do we rejoice when we're able to get a new car? Is our greatest joy found when we're able to move into a new house? Or is our joy found when sinners are found and saved? Our God greatly rejoices when a single sinner repents, then so should we. So let's share the value of just one. You might say, well, I just don't know where the lost are. Well, you know, the North Carolina Baptist State Convention did an interesting study a couple of years back where they identified, and we talked about this briefly before, but there's a little video that will help you understand kind of the metrics behind this. They identified 250 pockets of lostness in our state, all right? These 250 pockets of lostness they've identified as places where the gospel is waning. So listen to this video as they kind of describe what they're talking about with the 250 pockets of lostness. These geographic areas are five miles or less in radius. But we call them pockets of lostness because it's a pocket where lostness is growing at a faster rate than most of the other areas around it. Sometimes we think that we are referring to metropolitan areas only, but the reality is that we will find those pockets in suburban area and rural areas as well. It's also a place of great diversity. Jesus. 
So you see, what they've identified as pockets of lostness are just these areas where the gospel is waning, where people are walking away from the message and the hope of Christ. You say, okay, well, let's identify one of these pockets of lost, lostness. Let's, let's find a place where the lost are living, and let's go and let's share the gospel there. Well, look at this, this screen here. This is from the North Carolina Baptist website where they show their there are 250 pockets of lostness. Do you see this right here? This is the town of Madison. We are living within one of the pockets of lostness. Look at these statistics. They say there are a total of 300 or 3,260 total households here in the Madison area. Of those 2,209, they've identified as unreached. Friends, do you hear the lost world calling out around us? Do you want to go where the lost are living well then just move an inch from where you are you'll be there because this is the reality that we're living in and look if you look within this radius here this is a three mile radius this pocket of lostness that they've identified do you know how far our church is from the middle of that radius a mile and a half we're right dead center in the midst of one of these pockets of lostness And I don't know how all of you feel when you hear a truth like that. But it burdens my soul as a pastor of a church that's in the the dead middle of a place like that. That individuals are falling away from the gospel. I mean, there's so many things that we could celebrate as a church here. There's so many positive things that God is doing here. But if we are not burdened to the core over a reality like this, then we've missed the whole objective, my friends. And this might seem like an insurmountable problem, the thought of going after roughly 2,209 households. You know what likelihood is? Any one of us is not going to be able to reach all of those households. But let me, let me share with you a story I heard. One day an old man was walking along the beach that was littered with just thousands of starfish that had been washed ashore by the high tide. As he walked, he came upon this boy who was eagerly throwing those starfish back into the ocean one at a time, one after another. And, and puzzled, this old man kind of looked at this boy and ask what he was doing. Without looking up from his task, the boy was just frantically throwing, one at a time, these starfish back into the water. And he, and he said, son, what are you doing? The boy replied, I'm saving these starfish, sir. Well, the old man chuckled a little bit because there had been thousands that had washed up on the shore. He said, son, there are thousands of starfish and only one of you. What difference can you make? Well, that boy picked up one starfish just as he was speaking, and he gently tossed it into the water, and he said, I made a difference for that one. You know, we talked last week about identifying one individual who needs to hear the gospel. And I ask you to say to God in prayer over this past week, God, would you lead me to one individual that I can be an influence for? And that's why we're stepping into this campaign that I'm I'm talking about with who's your one. Every one of us should be able to answer that question. Can you imagine if every Christian could answer that question, who's your one, with one individual that you are praying about, one individual that you are intentionally seeking to share the gospel with? We're asking as a part of this initiative for every disciple of Jesus Christ who calls New Vision Fellowship home to do these five tasks. One, identify. Ask God to reveal to you one individual who is far from him whom you might reach. Secondly, intercede. Pray for that one who is lost. Thirdly, invest. Build a relationship with that one. Invite them out to dinner. Number four, intent. Intend, that is engage your one in spiritual conversations. And then finally, invite. Share the gospel with your one. Invite them to come to know Christ in saving faith. Because this is the heart of our God. He sees value in just one. And you may say, I can't make a difference for that huge number that's around us. But I ask you this, in your heart of hearts, can you truly say that you couldn't make a difference 
for just one? And so we're going to close our service here today with just a little time of prayer, and we're going to do things a little differently than we might do. As a matter of fact, I hope that you've been praying over this past week. I hope you've been praying about who you might reach, who might be your one, who could be the one that you might reach. And, and I'm going to ask you to pause for just a few moments of silent prayer. And as you're praying, I want you to ask God, would you lead me, would you enable me, would you grant me the opportunity to have one individual that I can invest my life in for the cause of the gospel? And as you're praying for that, if the Lord should lead you to be an individual who would identify one that you might reach, I'm just going to ask you as you're praying to, to stand where you are. All right, so take that, take that opportunity now. Bow before the Lord. Ask him, Lord, would you use me, could you use me to reach one for the cause of your gospel, to search after them with the passion that you have for just one who is lost. And if the Lord is leading you in these moments to say that I can be an instrument to reach the one, I'm just going to ask you to stand in your response to say I'm willing to go after the one. God, I rejoice to see you working in these moments, calling the individuals in your church to be what you've called us to be, to, to share in your heart, to share in this passion, to pursue the one who is lost, to pursue even just one who is apart from you. Lord, the, the darkness is great around us, but we trust in the one who can shatter darkness. We trust in the one who can bring hope into the bleakest of situations. So, Father, I pray that in these who are deciding even now, Lord, in these who are standing and those who are on the verge of standing, those who you are placing a soul in the mind of, Lord, you're placing a soul in the heart of these individuals that they might pursue, they might passionately seek to bring the gospel to, Lord. I pray that you give surety to their steps. I pray you give confidence to their efforts, not because they have some unique ability, but because they have a Savior who will never leave us nor forsake us. So God, go with us. Grant us that we might reach the ones that you are reaching. Grant us that we might bring a faithful testimony of the gospel. Grant us that we might join the celebration of heaven as we see lost sinners turn to you. Father, guide us in this way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.